Very good. Turn, if you would, tonight to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the health and the ability to be able to return tonight. I pray that you'd bless the effort to preach your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to uh, listen, to give attention. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be reminded of what we need to be reminded of tonight, and Lord, that it would have impact on the days and weeks of our lives ahead. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the risk of running this into the ground, I want to remind us of what we have been dealing with the last few weeks. We know that the believers that were being written to at this time, they were going through some hard times, they were going through some difficult days, And as I have said repeatedly, the writer seems to suggest that at least a portion of their difficult days were the result of God's chastisement in their lives. And yet, regardless of the reason or the the cause for this chastisement or these difficult days, uh, they were in need of encouragement and they were in need of some support. And so the writer was trying to encourage them, the writer was trying to help them and and get their focus back on God, get their focus back on their service to the Lord, which is what it needed to be. And yet, as we came last week to verses 15 and 16, he reminded the writer, he reminded the readers, rather, of their responsibility one toward another. And last week, I tried to remind us that as fellow believers, we have a responsibility toward each other that we are not here just to do our religious thing on a Sunday and then a Wednesday and then just be done with everyone, but because we are a body, because we are a fellowship of believers, we have a responsibility toward one another, especially when people are going through hard times and going through difficult days. And so what he said in verses 15 and 16 was this, was to look diligently or to oversee or to give attention to these things, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And all that meant was lest they lack or to find themselves uh, coming up short in the grace or the kindness or the favor or the, the tenderness of God. And I tried to remind us last week that when people are going through hard times, they sometimes lack the grace of God that they need. Do they not? We should know that because... Whenever we go through hard times, sometimes we lack the grace of God that we should have. We're not as kind, we're not as tender, we're not as merciful as we ought to be. And so when we know someone is going through a hard time, we need to give attention to this. What is their spirit like? Are they showing the grace of God? He went on to say that you want to make sure that bitterness does not spring up, which would trouble them and thereby many be defiled. It is true that whenever people are going through hard times, when people are going through difficult days, that not only do they struggle with the grace of God to be the gracious people they ought to be, but they begin to get bitter. They begin to be angry. They begin to be resentful. And that not only affects them, it also affects the others around them. And then finally, in verse number 16, he said, "...lest there be any fornicator or profane person, which meant an immoral or ungodly person." And then he pointed to Esau as an example... But the point seemed to be this, and again, we know this to be true if we pay attention, that when people are going through hard times, when people are going through difficult days, they begin to allow sin into their lives that they used to not would have dreamed of allowing to take place. 
They let their guard down. They just kind of changed their whole approach and their whole attitude toward life. And they began to let things enter into their lives that they otherwise would not have. And we need to be mindful of that. We need to be aware of that and we need to care about it. That is part of our responsibility toward other believers. So what do we do when we notice this? What are we required to do? What are we called upon to do? Well, I told us three things last week that can be found in Scripture. First, if we notice this happening, we need to pray for the person. It seems so basic, it seems so obvious, and yet so many times it fails to be done like it ought to be done. Past the praying for the individual, we need to encourage the person and try to show them and try to remind them of the goodness of God and the, and the mercy of God and, and just try to be to them what we need to be and what they need of us. And then there will be times, if we're honest, there will be times that we need to rebuke them because what they're doing is not right, it is wrong, and they just need to be reminded that no matter what the difficulty is, that cannot be justifiable behavior in their lives. All right? So that's what we talked about last week. Tonight we're going to be in verses 16 and 17. And I shared with you this morning that tonight's message, obviously still within our study of Hebrews, but yet it's kind of like a side note, for lack of better words, in this passage and what's going to be discussed in later verses. But, to more, but tonight... I'd like to begin with this thought, all right? I'd like to begin with a thought. The, uh, I, I want to talk about something that some of you are probably familiar with. How many of you remember the old game show that aired, I think, every week, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Do you remember that show? Yeah. All right, a few of us do, not very many. All right, well, it was kind of an interesting show that had some popularity a few years ago. If you ever watched the show, then you remember the basic format of how it happened. You had a single contestant who was seated in a chair across from the host, and they would answer a series of questions that would get increasingly more difficult the higher up they went, and each question was worth a certain amount of money. And if everything went right on behalf of the contestant, they would eventually be answering a question worth $1 million. Does this sound familiar? All right. So if they answered that final question correctly instantaneously before taxes, they were a millionaire. That's how the show, the show worked. That's how the game was played. All right. Because it was a multiple choice question for each question that was asked, a multiple choice answer, rather. All right. If, if you watch the show, here's what you would remember that the person may sit there and try to figure out which answer made the most sense for the question. And they would say, well, I'm thinking maybe A, but it could be C. Well, I was thinking one time that I, you know, it might be D, whatever. But they eventually had to give an answer. Does this sound right? Okay, okay. Just want to make sure. All right, so they would give their answer. And here's what the host would say. Is that your final answer. And the contestant then had to respond with this statement. Yes, that is my final answer. Once that statement was made, here is what it did. It locked in that person's selection no matter what. 
If they said that their answer was B, whatever it may have been, if they said that is my final answer, and immediately after saying that they realized they got confused on the question, whatever the scenario was, and they realized it was C, they could not go back and say, no, 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 that's not my final answer. It's this. No, once they said this is my final answer, it was the final answer. There was no changing it. There was no altering it. If it was right, that was good. If it was wrong, it was their fault. It was not the fault of the host. It was not the, uh, the, the fault of the audience members. It was completely on them. But there would be no changing the answer once the final answer was given. Now, we'll come back to that in just a couple of moments, that thought, that idea. But tonight I want us to notice in verse number 16, once again, that the writer speaks of Esau. The writer speaks of Esau. Now, I think that most of you know who Esau is, but some of you may not. Some of you may think you know who he is, but you may be a little uncertain. So it's for those of you who don't know or who may be uncertain, I want to remind us of this, who Esau was. He was the oldest son in the book of Genesis of a man by the name of Isaac. And Esau had a younger brother by the name of Jacob. So you had Isaac who had two sons, the oldest being Esau and the younger being Jacob. And in verse number 16, here is what it states, that who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now again, many of you probably know what the birthright is a reference to, but some of you may not. So let me just remind us of what the birthright was. The birthright was something that was bestowed upon the oldest son for no reason other than this, he was the oldest son in the house. All right? So it's not because he was smart. It's not because he was talented. It's not because he had the best ideas and he was good at leadership or anything of that nature. The birthright was bestowed upon the oldest child simply because they were the firstborn. They were the oldest son. So that in mind, what did that mean when you were the one who was given the birthright? Well, it meant this, that you would enjoy in the future a position of leadership and a position of authority within the family. Because when the father passed away, that leadership and that authority would be passed on to the oldest son in the home. And so Esau, because of his birth order, because he was the oldest... What would have happened is this, is that when Isaac passed away, he would have been the one who then gave the official direction and the leadership of the home, and Jacob and others would have been somewhat uh, uh, obligated to yield to the leadership of Esau. But in addition to that, there was also this privilege to the one who obtained the birthright, and that is this, they received a double portion by way of inheritance when their father passed away. Okay? So what that would look like is this. Take my family for just a moment, and I am the youngest son in my family, my brother being four years older than me. And so what that would look like then is this, is when my father passed away, by nature of their culture, my brother would then be the authority figure of our family. In addition to that, when my father passed away, 
my brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance and I would only receive one-third of the inheritance because the oldest son always received a double portion of the inheritance. So if there were five children, then the inheritance was split six ways and the oldest got one-third and everyone else got a sixth. Somebody may say that doesn't seem fair, and you know what their culture would say? Deal with it. They didn't care because that's how their culture worked and that is how the system worked. So here is Esau, and he is in line because of his birth order to take on the birthright, which meant he would take on the leadership and the authority of the family at some point, and he would enjoy a double portion of the inheritance upon the passing of his father. But it says in verse number 16 that Esau sold his birthright for one morsel of meat. Now, again, I know that this is repetitive and review for many of us, but where is this statement coming from and why is this statement being made? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, you read the story of how Esau was out in the field and he came in from his time in the field and he was to the point of starving in his mind, okay? He, he was so hungry that he truly believed he was going to starve to death and it just so happened as as chance would have it, so to speak, or by the sovereignty of God, whichever you choose to believe, it just so happened that Jacob was fixing a meal. He was fixing some, some pottage or some stew. And, and here is what happened. Esau made his way to Jacob, and he asked for some food so that he might be preserved and he might be revived. You remember this, don't you? Okay. Now, Jacob, if he had been our son, what would we have told him? We would have said, give your brother some food, right? Just be nice to your brother. Just give him some food. So Jacob didn't exactly handle this situation correctly, right? What did Jacob say? Jacob said this, yeah, I'll give you some meat. I'll give you some stew. I'll give you some food. If you sell to me your birthright, or in exchange for your birthright, I will give you that food. So what is Jacob now requiring in order for his food to be given to his brother? He is requiring now of Esau that he surrender the birthright, which meant Jacob is saying, I want the position, I want the authority, I want the leadership, I want the influence, I want everything that comes with that, and then I want the double portion of the blessing or the double portion of the inheritance when it comes time for dad to pass from this life. And what does Esau do? Well, the scripture tells us in verse number 16 that he sold the birthright or he gave it up for that one morsel of meat. Now, in Genesis chapter 25, here is not what we really should be leaning toward by way of our thoughts or our belief system that Isaac was about to die. It seems as though in Genesis chapter 25, Isaac is still relatively healthy, he's still relatively well, and so there would be no immediate thought that Isaac was about to pass from this life. And so here Jacob and Esau are, and, and, and really what you see is this, is Esau is not thinking about the future at all, he's just thinking about the immediate moment that he is in, and he says, okay, I'll sell you my birthright so that I can have some food, so that I can survive. Now, was the situation really that dire? We don't know. Again, Esau thought it was, and that's why he made the trade. 
So then you go to Genesis chapter 27, and as is often the case in the Scripture, time moves fairly quickly throughout the verses, and, and Isaac is now an old man, and he'll soon be dying. Sounds familiar, does it not? And then let me just say this one more time. You may not need all this review, but there are others who may not know the verses and the stories as well as you. So, so be patient, okay? All right. So you come to Genesis chapter 27, and Isaac, the father of Esau and Jacob, is now an old man. And, and, and what does he want? He wants Esau to go out into the field and to, to, to kill a prey and to bring it back and make him one of his favorite meals. And through deception, here is what happens with Isaac's wife and Jacob. Jacob is able to go into the presence of Esau, who is now blind, and deceive his father and receive on himself a prayer of blessing that in the mind of Isaac and in the mind of Esau, that prayer of blessing would have been bestowed upon Esau. But because of the deception of Jacob and his mother, the blessing of, of promise and the blessing of, of wealth and increase and power, that was bestowed upon Jacob. Now again, not done in the right manner, but that is how it worked and that is how all of it transpired. So notice in verse number 16 it says, As Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, then he said, for ye know how that afterward, after what? After all this had happened and after all the years had passed, it says when he would have inherited or come into possession the blessing, he was rejected. So when it was time for, listen now, when it was time for Esau to be the recipient of his blessing that was owed to him, so he thought, it went to Jacob, and it says he was rejected. So notice what it says in verse number 17 after that. It says, For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully or earnestly with tears. He found no place of repentance. I think in order for us to understand this statement, in order for us to understand what is being communicated here, we have to be reminded of what repentance is. Repentance is whenever you and I or anyone else has a change of mind about something. And as a result of a change of mind, here is what that will truly produce if we truly have a change of mind. It is going to produce a change of behavior and a change of action in one's life. Okay, so when somebody repents, here's what they are doing. They are having a change of mind toward a particular action, toward a particular mindset, whatever it is, they are having a change of mind, and whenever a person begins to think differently, they will always in the future then act differently. When there is no repentance of any sort, of any measure, there is no real change of mind, which means there will be no real change of behavior. Now, just like last week, I tried to remind us that grace is present in a believer's life far past the point of salvation. We have to remember this, 
that repentance is also present in a believer's life well past the point of salvation. Would we agree? We've got to agree on this or, or one of us is wrong in our Bible doctrine, okay? See, whenever I got saved, whenever you got saved, we had to admit that the way we were living and the direction we were going and the lifestyle we were living, we had to admit that was wrong and we had to change our mind and our thought process about the direction we were living. And as we did that, besides being saved by the grace of God, we had to then change our behavior, we had to change our actions because we could not really say that we were sorry for our sin and we were, were, we were repentant of our sin if we continued doing so. Okay, so repentance certainly must be present at the time of salvation, but there is not one of us in our Christian lives who have not gotten off track some in, in our walk with God. And as we have gotten off track in our walk with God, like what Brother Chad mentioned Wednesday night, he said, here's what happens. We justify it. And we rationalize it and we excuse it. And if you don't remember the message, you need to go back and listen because it was a wonderful truth. And so every one of us, there have been those occasions and those seasons in our spiritual lives where we get off track and we're living in disobedience to the Word of God. And whenever that happens, listen, if we're ever going to be made right with God, what must then take place? Repentance. If your Christian life is what it's supposed to be, I can assure you, whether you viewed it this way or not, you have repented on many, many occasions. You have said, I must change my mind about this particular action, and I must change my ways, and I must begin living different than how I'm living right now. So repentance is not just about salvation. It is critical and it is important in our daily Christian walk, in our daily Christian lives. So as it says in verse number 17, For ye know, or you are aware, or you understand how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. He was told, no, this blessing is not for you. It's been given to your brother. It says, for he found no place of repentance. What does that mean? It means this. He found no place or no opportunity at this point to change his mind. At this point, it was too late. Esau, years ago, when you sold the birthright, and Esau, years ago, when you despised your birthright, Esau, when you looked at the birthright in that moment, in that immediate uh, scenario, Esau, when you sold your birthright for a morsel of meat, and then you lost out on the blessing, here's what happened. Whether you realized it or not, let's listen, whether you realized it or not, you gave your final answer. So now it's time for the blessing. Now it's time for Dad to pray over you and bless you and tell you how great you're going to be and tell you how wonderful you're going to be. Yeah, that's what you want, but see, here's the problem. You gave that up a long time ago. And so I know that right now you are... You're, you're crying bitter tears. 
You're seeking it with tears? In Genesis chapter 27, it talks about how he wept exceedingly. Hey, hey, listen. Esau, I understand you want everything to go back to how it was supposed to be, how it could have been, and how it should have been. But see, with that decision you made, you locked in what your future would be. So when Jacob received the birthright upon Isaac's death, it wasn't because Isaac was being harsh and mean and and hateful and lacking mercy or grace toward Esau. No, that was the answer you locked in. And the fact that God worked it out to where the blessing went upon Jacob rather than you, listen, that's not because of the deception, though from man's viewpoint that's what it would look like, That's because God was aware of everything that happened and God was mindful of everything that happened. And though you are seeking it now with tears and though you are weeping exceedingly, listen, you might as well dry it up. Because it's a done deal. You do not get to just go back and change it because now you see the error in your ways. You don't get to go back and just say, no, 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 I I, I want to change my mind. You can't do that. It's locked in. It's a done deal. So now these are the consequences of it. That in mind tonight, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. I want to remind us tonight, first and foremost that you and I are free beings. Listen, I, I want that to be very clear. We are not robots who have no will and who have no say in the direction and and in the affairs of our lives. We've got to understand that because we have to then understand the personal responsibility associated with that truth. I am free to do whatever I want to do. And you are free to do whatever you want to do. So tonight, as you leave church, you can live however you choose to live. This week, as you live each day that God gives you, you are free to do whatever you want to do. Tomorrow, you can have whatever attitude you want to have. You can speak however you want to speak. You can do whatever you want to do. You and I are free beings, and we have the ability to make whatever choices we want to make. That's a wonderful thing. Personally, I'm thankful that I am not controlled by some outside force to where I can really declare it wasn't my fault. No, if something happens, well, guess who it's on? That would be on me. Now, now see, we are free beings. We are free creatures. We are free to choose whatever we want for our lives. But I want to remind us 
of a statement that has almost become a cliché, but it needs to be stated again, and that is this. Though we are free to live however we choose, we are not allowed to determine the consequences that come from the choices we make. So you can go out tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever it may be, you and I are free to do whatever we want. But there is going to be a consequence for our choices that we have no say and no authority over. That's just the reality of life. Now, somebody says, well, you're just being a negative preacher tonight. No, do you realize that that could be a positive thing? That if I choose to live wisely, that if I choose to live in obedience, if I choose to live according to the, to the truths of God's Word, then there are going to be blessings that really, I mean, I'm somewhat responsible for, but those blessings, they come from God, and, and that's because of God's goodness. But I do need to remember, and you need to remember the flip side of it, that if I choose to live in disobedience, if I, in a sense, choose to lock in my answer of self-will and self-governing and, and, and self-determination of what I'm going to do with my life, then I must remember this, that whenever I lock in that answer, whatever consequences come my way, I own every one of those. And I'm responsible for it. And it doesn't matter how much I weep. It doesn't matter how much I bemoan. It doesn't matter how much I, I wail. It does not matter because, see, once I've reached the point where the consequences are painful and the consequences are hurting me, it, it, listen, and, and you've got to hear this all the way through, it does not matter how much I repent at that point. I still have to deal with the consequences of the decisions I made in the past. Amen. See, here's what happens. If we're not careful, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, it is so twisted and ripped out of context that people don't understand how life really works. What do you mean? I mean this. We'll not talk about ourselves right now. We'll just talk about other people. That's more enjoyable. How many of us have ever known people and they have made a mess of their lives? They had their choices. They had their freedom. They had the ability to do whatever they wanted to do with their lives. And, and they did it, maybe even in spite of warnings that were given to them. And, 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 and they made all these decisions. And now... It's time to start paying for all those decisions. Well, what do they want to do? They want to start repenting. They want to start saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, I apologize. I'm so sorry. Please, God, I'll never do this again. And what are they doing? They're repenting. What are they doing? They're changing their mind, which means they'll change their actions. And that's all great and that's all good. But see, grace and forgiveness was never meant to be a giant eraser that just said, well, okay, we'll erase the past and everything's going to be fantastic past this point. No, there's no such thing as that kind of a, a pixie dust, so to speak, that just wipes away 
everything where we don't have to deal with the consequences of our actions. I'm thankful for forgiveness. And I am thankful for grace. And I am thankful that repentance can still be found and and mercy can still be extended unto me or to anyone else. But I must remember the example of Esau. That if I lock in an answer today and I don't like the result of that at some point in the future, It does not matter how many tears I cry. How many tears I shed and weep in the the privacy of my own home, at the altar of the church. It does not matter. There is still a consequence to our actions. We don't like to hear that. What people want to hear is this. Let me live however I want to live. Then when the hard times start coming, let me cry out to God and let me be given this safety net, so to speak, and this giant rescue where I don't have to deal with any of it. And and that's just not Bible doctrine. It may be taught, it may be preached, and it may be promoted as Bible doctrine, but it's just not Bible doctrine. There is a consequence for our actions. Now, somebody may say something like this. Can't God use the person who has lived in sin? Can't God use the person who has made mistakes? Of course he can. Come on, of course he can. We see testimonies and examples of that all the time. In fact, every one of us are testimonies and examples of God using us past our sins. And in spite of our failures... But every one of us know this as well. No matter how much we've been forgiven, no matter how much of the forgiveness and the grace of God we have known because of repentance, we have still had to deal with the consequences of decisions we made days, weeks, or even years prior. Am I telling us the truth? Once we lock it in, there's no going back. That's not very merciful. It's just the way it works. Once we lock it in, there's going to be a reaction to the decision we've made. Can God heal? Can God restore? Can God do an amazing work in our lives? Yes, but there will always be that past that has to be acknowledged and, and admitted. That even some of what I'm dealing with today is the result of what happened however long ago. And so tonight this message is not meant to be a, a mean-spirited message. It's not intended to be something that, that tries to serve as a threat to all of us or anything like that. But the purpose of tonight's message with this little insert about Esau and who he was and what happened in his life, for me at least, what I want this message to be is a challenge to you and I. 
to consider the choices we are making today. Because the choices we are making today may not impact us for a long time. But they will impact us at some time. So I want to challenge us to consider the choices and the decisions we are making today and then ask this question, and it's a tough one to answer sometimes when we'll be honest with ourselves, but I want us to answer this question, am I comfortable with what will be the final result of the decision I'm making? See, we can't afford to live in a short-sighted manner. We've got to ask ourselves, where will this decision take me? Where is this decision going to lead me? If I'm about to embark in this direction, if I'm about to take this course of action, I've got to be honest and I've got to be willing to look ahead and say, okay, where will this take me? And if this is where it's going to take me, Am I comfortable with where I'll end up? Am I comfortable with where I'll be? You know this as well as I do. I'm not trying to waste time. I'm not trying to to beat a dead horse. You know this as well as I do. There are many people who do not want to think about the consequences. They just want to make decisions right now and worry about that later. You and I can't afford to do that. No one really can afford to do that, but you and I cannot afford to do that. And we can't afford to do it for this reason. When the consequences start rolling in, there will be no place of repentance in that moment. Can we ask the Lord for forgiveness? Yes. Can we change our manner of action? Yes. Can we have a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of uh, of attitude? Yes. But we will not find a change in the course of action just because all of a sudden we started crying tears. I just want to challenge us to consider the choices we are making today because it locks in consequences at some point in the future. And we need to be comfortable with where those decisions are taking us, because once we get there, we own them, and there's no denying it, there's no blaming others, there's no pushing it off on other people. That is on us, and we then are forced to deal with the consequences. Just think about it because we need to, okay? All right, let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you would help us to be men and women who think about the long term, who think about the future of the decisions we are making right now. And Lord, I know that For myself, it's not always easy to do that. Sometimes I just want to live for the moment, and I don't really want to think about what the long-term consequence may be. 
And Lord, I don't believe that I'm the exception to that rule. I don't believe that I'm some odd individual. I think every person in this room, if they're honest, they would have to admit that many times that's what they want to do, just make a decision in that moment but not think about the long-term ramifications. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand that just because we change our mind later doesn't mean that we can undo everything that we've done now. And so I pray that you'd help us to walk with some caution, with some reservation, maybe even to a point some hesitancy, because we don't want to make mistakes that will cost us in the future. So I pray that you'd help us tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.